everyone. This is Jules, your host of the All Things Isom podcast. Welcome to this week's episode, which features an interview I did with Kaori Stefansson, an Icelandic neurologist who is also the founder and CEO of Decode Genetics, a biopharmaceutical company based in Reykjavik. Kaori pioneered the use of population-scale genetics to understand variation in the sequence of the human genome. The discoveries from using this approach have helped with developing new drugs and for scientists to better understand cardiovascular disease, cancer, and schizophrenia, just to name a few. Additionally, the population-scale approach has served as a model for other national genome projects around the world. Before founding Decode, Kaori served as a professor of neurology at the University of Chicago and later became chief of the neuropathology division at Harvard University. Since the founding of Decode, Kaori has received many accolades. While I was curious to learn more about his work, we also spoke about his views regarding certain topics in Icelandic society, what he thought of us Americans after living in the U.S. for more than 20 years, and of course, his favorite Icelandic word or phrase. I hope you enjoy listening to this interview as much as I enjoyed conducting it. Thanks for sitting down with me today to talk about your very fascinating life and work. Mm, don't think that my life is particularly fascinating. It is very much focused on work. Mm-hmm. And... Um, simply because I enjoy what I do enormously. Yeah. I'm a part of an organization that is full of very bright young people, very creative people, and uh, I'm allowed to participate in making all kinds of discoveries that I feel very, very much privileged to be a part of. And therefore, I do hardly anything except work and do a little bit of reading okay. or fiction. So you've- continued, your passion has continued as the yes. years have gone on. Yes, That's great. And on that note, what sparked your interest in studying genetics? It is, it is very difficult if you have any interest in biology not to be interested in genetics. You have to remember that all life on Earth is rooted in information that lies in DNA. There is no life on Earth without DNA. And pretty much the the diversity in the entire biosphere is dictated by differences in the sequences of ACGs and Cs and DNA. Mm. So if you have any interest in biology, genetics is bound to be at the center of your interest. And um, besides that, we I, I was so lucky to surround myself with people who are very talented in this field, and that has helped me to maintain the interest. I am originally trained as a physician. I'm a medical doctor. I'm a board-certified neurologist and neuropathologist, and I worked as a clinician for 20 years. And all my career as a physician was in America, 15 years in in Chicago, five years in Boston. Mm -hmm. But since I came back to Iceland in 1996, I've been singularly focused on, on human genetics. And why did you start Decode Genetics, and specifically, why did you choose Iceland as the place where you did? It was easy for me to choose Iceland because I was born here, right? My family has lived here for 1,100 years. So it wasn't a difficult choice for me. Okay. And uh, I was so lucky, or 
that the Icelandic nation has some attributes that makes it desirable subject of, of genetic research. We have what is called a founder effect, which is rooted in the fact that there's a very large percentage of the current population in, in Iceland that can trace its origin to a very small number of ancestors. Mm -hmm. And that means is that if one of these ancestors had a very rare mutation or very rare variant in the sequence of ACGs and Ts, it is relatively common in Iceland compared to what, it, what similar mutation would be in America. Okay. But I left academia, I left to Harvard because I was a bit bored with the with academia. I I've felt been there for like five 20, years. 20 yeah, years, okay. so five years in Boston. Right. And, um, and it was very difficult to build up large enough unit to make a difference in human genetics within universities. Okay. So okay. I founded a little company. Yeah. <laughs> I founded a little company called Eco Genetics and I've been working there ever since. And now it's not so much of a little company anymore. We have we have been, our contribution to human genetics have been fairly large. And, and this is the first time in the history of this nation that we have led the world in cutting edge science. Yeah. Because there's no question about it, we were the first to, to start this kind of population genetics that is now very popular in the world. And has been modeled for... Modeled in England, modeled in America, modeled in Estonia, modeled in Finland. People are, are trying to do the same thing that we have done. Yeah. In, in many places. And last May, you were elected a foreign associate of the National Academy of Sciences, which is quite the honor. Congratulations to you. And throughout all of the years that you've been working on decoding human genetics, what findings are you most proud of? I'm always most proud of what we did recently. Mm, okay. I'm most proud of, of the discovery that goes into the paper that I'm writing now. But we have done a lot of things. We uh, we put together the first uh, high-resolution genetic map of the human genome mm -hmm. in 2002. We have discovered sequence variants that protect against Alzheimer's disease, that increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease. We have found a lot of sequence variants that affect the risk of all kinds of arrhythmia of the heart, predisposed to um, all kinds of cancers. We have uh, been using human genetics to explore the function of the brain for example. And just if I look at all of this, I'm, I'm proud of all of these things. Yeah. And, Rightfully so. And, and one of the things that make it difficult for me to pick one of these things out is that when I'm working on science, I'm working with a group of young people. And, and when I think about these papers that we have written or the work that we have communicated into that comes my fondness for the young people who did that work or this work. And I feel like I'm, you know, I feel like it would be unfair towards them if I would pick one out or, 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 or elevate one of these pieces of work above everything else. Yeah, fair enough. And do you feel like a lot more young people are interested in studying genetics because of the work that's happening here in Iceland? We have definitely had substantial impact on that, but there are many others who have done that. Just the field itself mm -hmm. is probably the most cutting edge of the biological sciences. And uh, because of that, young people can tend to get attracted to it. Mm 
In Iceland as well. In Iceland as well, yes. And also because, you know, this is the most effective way of studying man. Mm. And one of our goals, one of our roles, one of our duties is to understand ourselves. And hopefully use it for good. It has always been considered a virtue in our culture to understand oneself as much as possible. Yeah. So not long ago, Decode recreated 38% of the African half of Jan's Janotun, a genome found in 182 of his descendants here in Iceland. He was, as you mentioned earlier, before we started recording, mixed African and European. You see, the the, the story of of Hans Jonathan is a story my father told me. Okay. You see, Hans Jonathan was the son of a Danish plantation owner Mm -hmm. and a black female slave. The plantation owner took his son and this uh, female slave with him to Copenhagen. And when he died, his, his widow sued the black woman for the crime of having a child with her husband. Wow. And they were sentenced to go back to the Caribbean. Okay. The son didn't want to, and he snuck on board a ship that went up to Iceland. He came ashore in a little fishing village on the southeast corner of Iceland, and he was received with open arms, the first black man to come to Iceland, which I look at as a evidence for the hypothesis that Racism is not innate to us. Right. It's, a, it's an artificial human construct. And he became the local merchant, was loved by the mm. people in the village. And my father was born in this village. And he was always talking about Hans Jonathan. And the reason we did this work is, is that sort of the story of Hans Jonathan has been with me yeah. ever since I was a little boy. So what we did is that we, he has 780 descendants in Iceland. We looked at the genomes of about 180 of them. Okay. And we reconstructed most of the haploid African genome. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't a particularly difficult scientific exercise, but the story in and of itself is so beautiful that I'm very pleased that we did it. Yeah. And I, think, I think this one, I think it is a, it's sort of a beautiful exceptionally beautiful story of the interface between races. Mm -hmm. And did everyone who you ended up using Descendant-wise, were they aware that they were descendants of... No, but everyone was proud when they found out. That's what I was so interested in. What was their reaction when they found out? The reaction is always positive. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. I've actually met someone who told me that he's a descendant. He said it with, like you're saying, was so proud. He was like, even, you see my hair is actually a little bit different than I said it made and I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it was just yeah. really fascinating. Okay. And Iceland, of course, was a really u- unique environment to be able to do this as well. Uh, no, not particularly unique. It would have been harder and in the U.S., for instance, to try and do it, it could be a little bit. Okay. You see, the, the reason this is easy is that when, you, when, when we were sequencing through the genomes of the descendant, when we came into the African pieces, they were so vastly different. Mm, okay. The diversity, the sequence diversity in the African genome is so much greater okay. than the sequence diversity in Icelanders. Remember, we all of us came out of Africa, right. and, and almost all of the human diversity is in Africa. We just have a subset of it. All right? You have everything, we just have a little piece of it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's fascinating. Okay. 
Over the years, you've been very vocal in the news about different issues in Iceland, including pushing the government to increase their healthcare spending and being in opposition to legalizing cannabis. Do you think that because of your status as a highly respected scientist, that it's your responsibility to share your views on these matters, or is it mostly coming from a point of view of a concerned citizen? I don't think it is my duty as a scientist. It's my duty as a, as a citizen here. You know, scientists are no better equipped than others to form a reasonable opinion on society. But I think that all of us have the responsibility of the being a part. Or let's say the responsibility of being a part of society is to express your opinion and try to influence your society to better. Right. I have been writing a lot of op-ed pieces for the newspapers expressing opinion on all kinds of things. Tomorrow at 5.30 I will be giving a, I will be giving a little talk at a gathering, outside gathering, mm -hmm. organized by young people in protest of, of the environmental issues. Mm -hmm. So I will be talking about the global warming stuff, which I think is extraordinarily important because yes. uh, if you think about it, if you think about it, you, 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 we, we have a responsibility towards our descendants. We always feel it when it's our children or grandchildren, but that responsibility ex extends beyond that. Mm -hmm. We have to return the globe, the earth, to our descendants in such a shape that they can live reasonably peaceful, happy lives there. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you see, people have been... There's a, there's a, you happen to come from a country with a president who insists that the global warming doesn't really exist. Right. right. And in many ways it is interesting because the, the globe is getting warmer. That's not a hypothesis. Right. Uh, that's just a result of measuring temperature over long periods of time. The hypothesis that man is contributing to the warming or to the global warming is a hypothesis and it is unproven and it will never be proven because to prove it you would have to do an experiment that is basically too disgusting to be able to mm. talk about it but it is highly probable that it is true and even if it would not be true that we have contributed to the warming we have to do whatever we can to decrease it right that's our duty towards our descendants I think it's important that we voice that opinion. Mm -hmm. I think it's important that we convince people like Donald Trump or get rid of him. All right? I'm, I'm fine with the latter, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so. I'm fine with the latter. I actually, one of the things I did, that I did for fun one day is that I wrote a little story for my, for my granddaughters. Okay. And it is the story about the monster under your bed when you go to sleep. Mm. And it's about the little girl who is very much afraid of the monster. But one, one night when she's going to sleep, the monster comes from underneath the bed. It is, looks a little bit peculiar and, and the girl is afraid of it to begin with. But it turns out to be a very nice monster. And it tells the girl that there is a parallel world, world parallel to ours, full of monsters. And the role of this monster is to watch over us. Mm. over as people on the other world. And they are not allowed to, to come into our world except when something really serious is happening. 
And this monster tells the girl that he has come over to our side because of the global warming. They have to do something about it. Mm-hmm. So the girl and the monster, they go on a trip, travel all over the world to look at uh, the consequences of global warming and talking to people. And they end up talking to Donald Trump and they are trying to convince him to sign the Paris Treaty. But they fail to do so. And the monster, like all monsters, has one wish. And he uses it there and changes Donald Trump into a chicken. <laughs> into a chicken? <laughs> and that's the end of the story. Okay. <laughs> and then it's just an orange chicken? But that's just like... a chicken. <laughs> just a regular chicken, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of this, um, not the story, but just when you were talking about how it's our duty, about a native proverb I'd heard once about that it says... We are not inheriting the earth from our ancestors. We're borrowing it from our children. Mm-hmm. And it just hit me so hard when I heard it. Because I was like, yeah, wow. The, the impact, obviously, mm-hmm. for later generations is way too serious for us to ignore. And so... Uh, yeah, no, it is. It is it, and even, even if all of this would be wrong, mm-hmm. even if our behavior wouldn't have any impact on global warming, And even if the global warming would in the end be determined to be an error, Mm. we had just misread something, it doesn't matter. We have the duty, if we are concerned about this, to do whatever we can. And besides that, it gives us an opportunity just to treat the earth in a more decent manner, cleaner and etc. But one of the things that is also important, that if you're going to do something about it, if you're going to change our behavior, to diminish our impact on the environment, it's going to come at a cost. And it's very important that that cost is being paid by people who can afford to do so. We have to use the the necessity of environmental measure to try to increase equality in this world. It has to be that the price of, of the environmental measures we take Mm -hmm. has to be paid by people who can afford to do so. Right. That is true. In terms of Iceland, obviously Iceland has a lot of clean energy aspects, kind of literally just as a part of the country and using geothermal. We have nothing to be proud of when it comes to environmental issues. That's what I was going to ask you. So what what, what could Iceland be doing better? There are are a lot of things we could be doing better. And and, uh, there has to be awakening when it comes to this. We have been you know, building two silicon factories over the past few years, both of them enormously polluting, you know. And they were put up under the stewardship of of uh, politicians who claim to be environmentalists. Right. We have a prime minister who is always expressing herself on environmental issues, you know, abroad. But what has he done except talking nothing? I, I love Katyn. She's a very good person. Mm-hmm. And I tend to share a lot of opinion with her, but she hasn't been doing very much. Yeah. I think that's the hard part, and this is for the listeners who are not kind of in the day-to-day society of Iceland, that the message is usually that Iceland is clean energy. Like, And of course, the geothermal energy part is great, but it's just really fascinating here from your perspective. We are, in, we are no different from you Americans really, yeah. when it comes to we, we have the same excessive consumption of everything. We, uh, we are not 
we are not uh, dealing with, with our environment in, in the manner that we should. And and, and sort of the, the idea that we have to do it in a better way is is gradually being formed on both sides of the Atlantic, but we are not ahead of you guys. Okay. We have fewer of us. The density, population density is relatively low, so from distance we look better. Yeah. <laughs> okay. In 2016, you announced that you could identify everyone in Iceland that had a high risk of getting cancer and that you wanted to work with healthcare specialists to reach out to those people to alert them of the potential danger. However, there was some pushback because even though people had consented to having their genes analyzed, they had not consented to being alerted about possible health risks found in their genes. Has anything around this situation changed at all? Like, have laws changed? You, see, you, you know, laws have not changed. The bill, there is a bill before Parliament to change, okay. to change the rules. Keep in mind that there is a tradition in Icelandic society, like in many other societies, that if we know that someone is in the danger of death, a great danger of death, and they don't know it, we alert them. Right. Even in places where there is a risk of avalanche, it's not only do we alert the people living in houses that are likely to be hit, if they don't want to leave, we forcefully move them. Right. So there is absolutely no tradition in Icelandic society for having the right not to know transcend the right to life. So all of a sudden, when we can identify people who are at a much, much higher risk of death from a mutation in the genome, right. than you are at a risk of death if you live in a house in, in Avalanche area, you know, women with, with a BRCA2 mutation in Iceland, they're at 86% probability wow. of developing lethal right. cancer. Yeah. And the remaining 14% are probably women who just die from some other reason. So it is probably it probably causes death or, or deathly disease in 100% of cases. And why should we not alert them? You can mitigate most of this risk by preventing mastectomy yeah. and preventing oophorectomy. So I, I think there's some sort of a misunderstanding there. Yeah. Most people in the country support my view, over right. 90%. But there are those who insist that our constitution and our and the laws based on the constitution would not allow us to yeah. alert them. And ethics, some, you know. And yeah. Yeah. I, th I thought it was a really fascinating topic when I read that. It, it, it is just, you know, then I'm not terribly upset about it, except that since I started to lobby on this issue, mm -hmm. probably a few hundred women have died prematurely, mm -hmm. unnecessarily. That's, that could have been prevented. But in many ways, it is understandable when you're straddling between the known and the unknown. You're pushing, basically, the boundaries of what we know. And you're pushing the boundaries of, of what we are using, or what we have recently known. It is understandable that it is going to get a little bit of a pushback. Mm. Even though you said there's a bill and it hasn't, the law hasn't changed yet, have people who thought that, okay, I don't know if I'm at risk because I haven't been alerted, because I haven't been allowed to be alerted, in essence. Have they then gone to the doctor and, and tried to get scheme We screenings? put up a website okay. that people can log into. They can ask for the status. Great. And, um, and we have sequenced their genes and stuff like that to help them to determine that. The problem with that approach is that this is a mutation that causes cancer in a relatively young people. 
And young people walk around with the illusion of immortality. Yes. <laughs> and true. they think that bad things are only going to happen to others. Right. Okay. Fair enough. So that's an unfortunate aspect of life, isn't it? Isn't yeah, it is. Okay. So you mentioned that you lived in the U.S. <coughs> for over 20 years studying its natives. You told me this once in a message. Did you find out anything strange or fascinating about us I, I, in the li U.S.? Listen to me. Listen to me. <laughs> I am very grateful for my time in America. American society was very generous to me. I was allowed to work in two of the best universities. I was treated extremely well there, extremely generously. I learned an awful lot. I came there as a as a 26-year-old man, was there for 20 years, and and I was, I was made sort of professionally by American society. So I have extraordinarily warm feelings to America. And it helps a little bit that I have a daughter and three grandsons who live in Los Angeles. So, so I have vested interest in American society. Mm -hmm. And I never cease to be amazed by some of the crazy things. <laughs> that uh, you Americans do. One of them is to elect a man like Donald Trump as wow, a president. That doesn't cease to amaze me either, to be fair. I, I just don't understand it at no, all. No. I am concerned that one of the things that has contributed to that is that the people who are least powerful in society, manual laborers, etc., have no voice in society anymore. Mm. A few decades back, they had the labor unions mm. who were their voices in society. And the left of politics they fought vigorously for their rights. Now left of politics is mainly occupied by highly educated intellectual snobs mm -hmm. who don't identify with manual laborers and cannot contribute at all to their lives. So they're being pushed to the extreme right, right. which is sad. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And this is... The group that elected. This is the group that... Majority-wise. Ma yeah, yeah, majority-wise. Even yes. though and there then, were people from who were highly educated as well. So it's just, that mix is also the one that is off-putting because you're just like, wait a minute. If <laughs> you have access to the information and whatever else, but mm -hmm. I think, yeah, there's a lot of different factors that went into play there. Mm -hmm. Okay, my last question for you is when I ask everybody, which is, what is your favorite Icelandic word or phrase? This is a complicated question. <laughs> you, can have, you can have more than one, if that helps. I honestly, I have difficulties picking a particular phrase that, uh, that I like more than others. Okay. There's an Icelandic poet by the name of Jón Helgason who was an expert in, in old Icelandic. He was an expert in our old manuscripts. But as a young man, he published one book of poetry, and it was a spectacularly talented one. And in one of his poems, he is describing when he came back. He grew up in, in, um, in uh, the countryside on a farm. And he started describing when he comes back home, had been living in Copenhagen for many years, and in that poem is the following stanza, which to me captures sort of the, to me is the, is the in my mind, the most remarkable, for me, the most remarkable sort of uh, piece of Icelandic language. You could say a phrase, you could say a word. For me, it 
is bound to be a stanza out of a poem. Okay. And it sounds as follow Ennigum Fedla, Flow and Jing. Finish so titring i gömlum string, hugan grunar hjá grassins rót, gamalt spor eftir lítin fó. It's a very beautiful... And can you translate that, please? No, it's he, just saying that he is now walking in the fields by the farm where he grew up. In his mind, finds the footprint of a little foot. So it's just this identifying with the little boy he once was. Nice. He's very nice. Yeah. He's a very good poet. Great. Well, thank you for sharing that. If you, one of the things you can do is that you can go into YouTube, mm -hmm. uh, type in my name, and you will find little talk I gave when I was presented with the William Allen's award, which is the biggest award that the American Society for Human Genetics gives. Okay. And you will learn a little bit more about me when you listen to it. Okay. Because I didn't give out, usually when people get this prize, they give a scientific talk. I had no interest in <laughs> So I just, I gave a little talk about myself and the people I work with yeah. and ended up giving a little poli political speech about Donald Trump. About <laughs> okay, so I find the video and I will embed it into, on my website so other people can watch it as well and get a chance to hear you talk about Donald Trump and the people that you work with. Yeah. So thank you very much, Kaori, for taking your time to speak with me. It was a pleasure.